listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured, episode 180. In this edition, we are talking to Mercedes Martinez of the Puerto Rican Teachers Union about the political uprising that has happened there and what the uproar means for the teachers and the schools of the island. But first, the news. The big headline for labor this week was the House passage of a bill for a $15 minimum wage, the Raise the Wage Act. The headline is pretty impressive, of course. $15 would, after all, more than double the current federal minimum wage of $7.25. But a closer look at some of the smaller points in the legislation reveals some even more quietly radical changes. It's not just that the minimum wage standard is raised, it's actually equalized for many sectors of the workforce that federal labor law has long neglected. The bill gets rid of special exceptions to the minimum wage standard that had been built into the Fair Labor Standards Act, particularly for workers with disabilities. These are workers who have long struggled with high unemployment and heavy discrimination. And since 1938, the Fair Labor Standards Act has allowed workers with disabilities to be paid less than the federal minimum wage if their employers qualify for an exception from the Department of Labor. Typically, these exempted jobs are in special work centers, also known as sheltered workshops, that are designed for workers with disabilities, usually doing manual jobs like manufacturing products for consumer markets and for government contracts. Bosses were free to pay them based on their so-called level of productivity, even if that amount dipped well below the minimum wage. Under the Raise the Wage Act, people with disabilities would be put on the same tier as other regular workers, no longer subject to federal rules that effectively legalize their exploitation and undermine standards for all workers for many years. The act also eliminates the subminimum wage for tipped workers so that restaurant servers and service jobs would be guaranteed the full $15 base pay. However, getting rid of the disability subminimum wage is an even bigger breakthrough because until now, many of them have basically no minimum wage at all and their earnings have been completely dependent on the whims of their employers. However, getting rid of the disability subminimum wage is an even bigger breakthrough because until now, many of them in many states have basically no minimum wage at all and their earnings are completely dependent on the whims of their employers. I spoke with Andrew Stettner at the Century Foundation for details on what this means for the disability community. There's a couple of things that are shocking about the subminimum wage for disabled. One, it assumes that it's okay for these workers, you know, in perpetuity, not like youth with like a training wage, but in perpetuity can earn less. And also there was no, since 1986, there's been no specific floor. So there have been workers that have been paid, you know, a dollar an hour, two dollars an hour, because it was up to the employer to say how productive their workers were and pay them according to that. And so it, it, and the enforcement was, you know, very lax, to say the least. So, you know, there were some bad instances of, of really, you know, discrimination and terrible conditions, you know, in these sub-minimum uh, workplaces, which were supposed to be regulated, but, you know, it's just, you know, were, you know, not well regulated. I mean, what is the landscape of disability-related employment schemes? Because I, I assume that the subminimum wage or this lower, this sort of two-tier system was kind of worked out when it was anticipated that people with disabilities would always be working in some kind of like, you know, special workshops or like sheltered workspaces. It was designed kind of with a certain kind of employment in mind. Yeah, I think it was, you know, very out-of-date policy designed, you know, with the idea that um, 
workers with disabilities, you know, were, you know, essentially second class citizens and would never be as productive uh, as other members, you know, of society and thus didn't, you know, deserve or need equal rights. And these workplaces, including today, are set up as these work centers that are specifically for workers' disabilities, you know, to produce a product, you know, normally um, and not working closely with other workers. Um, and so this, you know, this is an outdated policy where the and the rest of, you know, society's framework to people with disabilities has really changed, you know, starting with the American Disabilities Act, which requires public places and employers to put in reasonable uh, accommodations. Uh, and then, you know, more recently, not just the accommodations, but more the kind of uh, idea that there needs to be services, you know, in place to help work people with disabilities as they become adults, you know, to be able to live in the community and function fully as a member of their community, including employment. And, you know, that's really been the drive around disability services in many states and, and you know, to a certain extent federally. Um, and so this is kind of really out of step with that. The idea was workers with disabilities want to be treated as equal, um, you know, to other workers. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, this, you know, is about having the services to do that, the accommodations, and also fair treatment under the law, which is this is the last, you know, piece of that that's needed. Is there evidence that the um, maintenance of this subminimum wage actively encourage the segregation of, of workers and workplaces? Well, the only way to, um, you know, be able to pay this wage is if you have a certificate as one of these work centers, which are, you know, essentially segregated. But the good news about this is that these have started just as people with disabilities aren't institutionalized as much as they once were. These workplaces have also started to fade away, you know, because of uh, increasingly powerful and active disability rights movement that is pushing for community life, equal rights, um, you know, full participation in society. You know, the numbers have really gone down. So this is something that, you know, is being pushed, pushed out. And, and but people are very cognizant of this. There's a companion bill to this bill that would, you know, give communities the resources needed to make sure that everyone in these work places has the transition and those services and need to, you know, participate in the private workforce. But all the evidence is that, that this can be done. You know, the unemployment rate of people with disabilities has gone way down and that matches up with a lot of, you know, vignettes and stories as, you know, the economy grows and employers are looking to, you know, bring, bring more people into the workforce, you know, they're finding people with disabilities have the skills they need as long as they provide the supports and services that they need to be able to be successful. And so these workshops themselves are sort of seen increasingly as kind of a relic of the past. I think that's right. But yes, but with a very, like a lot of relics of the past, a very active constituency that supports them. Even if people with disabilities are theoretically entitled to the same minimum wage, what are the current barriers to income quality as well as, um, I guess, like, you know, just fair pay? Part of the Americans with Disabilities Act is to prevent kind of more subtle forms of workplace discrimination, right? Even when workers aren't directly segregated. It lifts the floor for workers with disabilities and it, it, it makes a clear statement, you know, that they're, they're full participants, you know, in the labor force. And, you know, it still doesn't mean that we don't need to have, you know, specific employment programs for people with disabilities. One successful program uh, is the Ability One contract to the federal government where contractors that have a certain percentage of people with disabilities 
you know, get an advantage um, mm-hmm. in bidding. But most of these are not 14C. They're paying the regular minimum wage. So we need those and many other programs, you know, but there's still going to be, you know, a lot of work to be done mm-hmm. for workplaces to be suitable for managers to understand different people's skills in a, in a time when, you know, certain disabilities are on the rise. So there's still a lot of work, you know, needs to be done. I do think there's going to be real pressure, um, perhaps not in this Congress, perhaps not before the 20th, but there's going to be real pressure on the Senate and the business community to to some compromise that they've not been previously comfortable with, you know, not, you know, $10 an hour, but, you know, something that has a path to 15. They're going to, you know, it may be negotiated to be a few more years, like you say, but I think there's going to be mounting pressure um, to create a path to 15, um, you know, on the Senate. That was Andrew Stettner, a fellow at the Century Foundation. This year's biggest labor story has been, of course, teachers' strikes. We've talked about them so much on this podcast, you might be sick of hearing about them. It's no secret that others in the labor movement don't feel entirely comfortable with the embrace of the strike once again, particularly by public sector workers. But the news this week that Andy Stern, former head of SEIU, has become an official advisor to the National Parents Union, an education reform group with, as Hamilton Nolan reported at Splinter, deep ties to the Walton Foundation, which, in addition to being the way the Walmart heirs avoid their taxes, spends much of its time trying to undermine teachers' unions and public education as a whole. Stern was already on the board of the Broad Foundation, another anti-union foundation whose founder donated nearly $2 million to swing the Los Angeles school board to the anti-union majority that provoked last winter's strike. As Nolan notes, Stern is lending his union world credibility to a group that says this in its organizing document, quote, in the same manner that teacher strikes and mobilization are commanding headlines, we have a vision of having parent rallies and mobilizations in the spotlight, redirecting the conversation from one about adults to one about students. The teacher unions currently have no countervailing force. We envision the National Parents Union as being able to take on the unions in the national and regional media and eventually on the ground in advocacy fights, end quote. There has been a long-standing question within labor as to whether the best path to growth is by making deals with the boss to re- allow relatively uncontentious unionization processes, adding dues-paying members who can then fund more campaigns to improve workers' lives, or whether power will only come from organizing workers into active unions that embrace shop floor militancy, struggle, and strikes. It's still a bit of a shock to see a former union leader, though, so blatantly side against labor militancy. Among other things, it seems like the wrong instinct at a time when things like full debt forgiveness and free higher education are on the policy platforms of major candidates for president and teachers around the country have won real power through the strike, putting charter schools and their loudest advocate, Cory Booker, on the back foot. Randy Weingarten of the AFT said to Splinter, quote, There must be some misunderstanding for a respected labor leader who spent a good part of his life helping working people to embrace a Walton-funded group dedicated to attacking them. I urge Andy to take another look at what exactly he's got himself into, end quote. There are real questions about organizing strategies, power, collaboration, and struggle to be asked and debated within organized labor, surely. But it seems at this point that former allies of Stern are asking, as the old song goes, which side are you on? It's been nearly a decade since New York made history by passing the first ever Domestic Workers' Bill of Rights. Since then, the movement for domestic workers' rights has snowballed across the country, with several other states following suit, including California and Massachusetts. 
The domestic workers' movement in the U.S. has also helped drive a global movement for equity for this often overlooked labor force. And now, legislation has been introduced in the House and Senate to extend equal federal labor protections to housekeepers, nannies, and home health aides nationwide. Introduced by Representative Pramila Jayapal and Senator Kamala Harris, the bill would provide basic labor protections such as overtime pay, health and safety regulations, and the right to a workplace free of harassment and discrimination. Other provisions go a step further than the New York bill to help make work more stable by mandating advance notice of a worker's schedule, by instituting formal employment contracts, and imposing protections against sudden shift changes. Workers would have expanded access to health care and retirement benefits, professional development training, and support for survivors of sexual harassment. And the bill also seeks to beef up enforcement of this historically underregulated sector, with protections from employer retaliation and emergency support services of survivors of sexual harassment. Most importantly, the bill provides something that the New York Domestic Workers Bill of Rights stopped just short of, the right to collectively bargain, and that paves the way for unionization of domestic workers. Though it's not clear what kind of collective organization this incredibly atomized workforce would form, with 2.5 million domestic workers nationwide, mostly women of color and immigrants, if there is a way for them to organize and bargain across households and across regions, then domestic workers could truly become a force to be reckoned with, compelling people around the country to recognize that the home is in fact a workplace. Strikes at Walmart have once again become a rare occurrence in the U.S., but not so perhaps outside of our borders. In Chile, Walmart Chile has reached an agreement with a union of 17,000 workers to end what was a six-day strike over wages and automation. The workers are at Walmart-owned supermarkets Lider, Express de Lider, and Super Bodega Aquenta, and the strike affected about a third of 400 or so stores that Walmart operates in the country. There is comparatively little reporting on this in the English language press, but it seems that Walmart had planned to automate certain jobs, lay off workers, and the union had demanded retraining for those losing their jobs and increased pay for those who would have to work with the new machines. Walmart, of course, denounced the strike, but did come to the bargaining table and eventually conceded a 5.1% wage increase and the retraining program for those being replaced by machines. It is worth remembering that while Walmart is stridently anti-union as corporate policy and maintains a very intense anti-union program aimed at crushing the first hint of organizing in the United States, it does in fact negotiate with unions in its various properties outside of the country. Just food for thought. Governor of Puerto Rico, Ricardo Rossello, has resigned in the wake of massive protests and a general strike in response to ongoing corruption investigations and the release on July 13th by the Center for Investigative Reporting of Puerto Rico, hundreds of pages of chat logs in which Rossello and 11 other male administration members mocked gay people, women, and hurricane victims. The arrests of high-profile administration figures, including former education secretary, as we mentioned last episode, were followed by more than a dozen resignations of administration officials who were implicated, including the former secretary of state, and eventually, as protests spread to the mainland U.S. and workers struck, to the governor's acceptance of the demand that he step down. 
This, of course, all comes in the wake of the twin crises of Puerto Rico that we have discussed many times here. First, the fiscal control board imposed by PROMESA, which was, of course, passed through the U.S. Congress, which in turn forced severe austerity measures on the island and its millions of people. And second, Hurricane Maria, which devastated the island but tempted many to sweep in with disaster capitalist proposals for revitalization. The governor's text making fun of those who died in the storm were, in so many ways, the last straw. This week, we spoke with Mercedes Martinez, who is president of the Federación de Maestros de Puerto Rico, the Puerto Rico Teachers Federation. Martinez was part of the general strike that escalated these actions this Monday and has been organizing in the wake of the storm and before it to reopen schools that were damaged, battle the privatization agenda of the now disgraced former governor and education secretary, and much more. She joins us to talk about those arrests, the corruption and its connection to privatization of public schools, the governor's resignation, the future of the island under the Fiscal Control Board, and what mainlanders can do to support Puerto Rico. So I guess start off and, and um, tell me where things are. I guess it's a Wednesday morning. What is the current state of things on the ground in Puerto Rico? People of Puerto Rico are waiting for any moment the governor's resignation message to be available to all of us. So we are just waiting. He said that it's going to be today, so we're just expecting the resignation. So let's go back a little bit. Tell us about the arrests that got this whole thing started with the education secretary. Well, the, the secretary of education and executive director of the health department were both arrested, I think it was like a month ago, or I don't even remember. I don't even know what they were living in, but approximately <laughs> about two months ago. And that awoke all of this. The Secretary of Education is being charged with self-influences, with um, corruption charges that lead up to an amount of $13 million. She handed out $902 million in contracts in two years in the Department of Education to the Friends of the Friends. And the scheme that she was involved in, the one that she's been charged with, is one where she favored a specific company that did not meet the criteria. That company is BDO through Alberto Vasquez who was the interventor. I don't know how you say that in English. Um, he was the one that went with the company to the Secretary of Education and got awarded a contract. Mm -hmm. And the other charges that she, she has seven charges that's against her, Julia Calajar. The other charges are related to two sisters. Their last names are Ponce. One of them worked for the secretary. The other one had a company. I forgot the name of the company, but it has her last name, Ponce, and something. Mm -hmm. And they handed out, I think it was a $45,000 contract to the company of the sister that was working under a clear conflict of interest. Right. So those are the charges that were pressed against the secretary that I walk in that really vindicated teachers. Teachers were right from the start or said what we were going to expect from Senora Calar. Teachers knew what she was going to do and the worst thing is that the worst crimes that she committed she's never gonna be tried for. Which are the closure of hundred and forty two schools. She affected the lives of more than seventy thousand students with the relocation that the school closures uh, implied. Yeah. Schools that are now not accessible to the children in their communities, mm -hmm. and they have to travel far, a lot of kilometers, to their new receiver schools. Yeah. 
without transportation. She favored the Law 85, which is the educational reform law, as they call it, but it's the law to privatize and demolish public education in the island. She was in favor of vouchers. She was in favor of charters to be implemented. And she has been, so far, the meanest, the baddest, the most corrupt secretary that we've ever had in our country. So she came in right after Hurricane Maria, right? She came before. Oh, she came before in before the hurricane. Yeah, she came in with with an agenda to privatize before the hurricane, and then the hurricane magnified that, right? Yeah, let me find well called it because of capitalism. She took advantage of the hurricane to advance the privatization agenda that she was in for from the beginning, and she was clear about that from the beginning. And she took advantage of the vulnerability of the people, and immediately after the hurricane occurred, she said that it was time to privatize and to shut down public schools, looking at New Orleans as a point of reference. That's why she brought in Puerto Rico, Paul Patrick, and she gave him a contract of $300,000 for, and as we know, he was the superintendent of the New Orleans Parish District and was the responsible one for privatizing almost the entire district of New Orleans. Right and converting the public schools to charter schools. So when she brought him in and Betsy Vaughn, we knew, you know, what they were up to. That's why the people of Puerto Rico were so resilient. And after the hurricane, she was not able to do it because even though people had no water, no electricity, no food, yeah. people were fighting for the for the, the things that they had yeah. for granted that, that were the schools. But there were protests every day after the hurricane demanding her to reopen the schools. And that battle we won on November 2017. Then in May 2018, she came back with the public policy of the government and the Oversight Fiscal Board, which is the same one, and they shut down uh, too many schools. In total, in two years, they shut down 442 schools. And so what has the role of, of your union and, and the other teachers' unions been in getting, sort of in supporting this investigation that resulted in these arrests um, and organizing around the school closures and the privatization leading up to this? Well, the, the role of the, of the union, the organized besides the Teachers' Federation and other unions that are united in an alliance, which is called FADEP, were to defend public education and against privatization, we were, and the dismantle of public education, we were very much involved in the struggle with the communities against the school closure. Yeah. If it was not because of the struggle that was led by the communities, we would not be talking about 442. The initial number that they wanted to shut down in schools was 800. Yeah. And that was crazy. So we were able to save many schools, uh, but half of them we were not. The government the government was very split and they announced the school closures all at the same time. They're telling you they're going to shut down 300 schools at the end of the semester, the last week of May, at the same time. So those of us who work organizing know that organizing one workshop is hard enough. Imagine having to organize 300 and some schools at the same time. So that's what they did. But unions were up front fighting. After the hurricane, we had to do disobedience in her office. 21 of us got arrested 
when we demanded her to reopen the school. Then we filed a lawsuit against the Department of Education, demanding them to reopen the schools, and the judge told the Secretary of Education she had to file a report stating why more than 50% of the schools that were ready in November 2017 after the hurricane were not open. So the, it was the pressure of the communities, the mothers, the grandmothers, the fathers, the students, the teachers, fighting back, cleaning up the schools, making them ready for the students, the civil disobedience, the lawsuit against her, all the pressure that made us triumph in that time. And so as far as the investigation, we're demanding a thorough investigation, but we know that the charges that have been charged against her are not the only ones are not the only crime she committed, so there should be more coming into this investigation. For example, they tried to hire the law firm where the brother of the governor works to give orientations to entities that want to privatize schools. So there's a lot of, a lot more going on. We know she's been charged for seven charges, but there's a lot of more things that have been going on in the department. We support 30-day investigations, but more than that, we have always asked the government of Puerto Rico to name the Secretary of Education with, I've seen the, the teacher union is a parent, mm-hmm. getting everyone involved to have them name and not just be named by the governor. Right. Yeah. Because as long as the Secretary is named by the governor, he's going to respond to the public policy mm-hmm. of the state and not benefit our children. So tell us about how the protests got started and the general strike that happened this week. Well, the tip of the iceberg was the telegram chat that came through and that people got to see it. It was little by little. First, it was some pages. Then some of the pages of the chat where the government officials and the governor were involved talking about what the public policy of the government is cynically against the people of Puerto Rico. And we've seen the chat in action throughout this they have been burning, you know, it's, but people got astonished. People would never, would never think that they would read something like that. They were making misogynist comments, homophobic comments, sexist comments, attacks on women, attacks on politicians, attacks on artists, attacks on the females that participated in the Miss Universe um, um, competition, etc. So, the, I think the most disgusting comment that we read was the one about our deaf people, mm-hmm. the people that died immediately after the hurricane when they were saying, well, do you think we have enough body? Do you think we have body to feed the crowds? So that got people very upset, very irated. And we have to thank the Center for Centro Periodismo Investigativo, Center of Investigative um, Journalism from Puerto Rico. Because they have been doing ongoing investigations for the past, I think, more than 10 years. And it was thanks to them that the people of Puerto Rico had access to the entire chat of the governor. They were the ones that publicized it. Mm -hmm. So we have to thank them for releasing that so people could see with their own eyes how public officials are taking advantage of the people are mocking the people that they are supposed to represent and are planning to destroy our country. They're talking about killing people where they say, oh, I feel like, 
like sending the mayor of San Juan and the governor goes and says, oh yeah, you will be doing me a great favor. And this is the people that we're dealing with, corrupt people, homophobic, misogynist, sexist, anti-workers, people. And they were ruined, so people got so upset and we've seen an uprising. And this is a revolution that's happening in Puerto Rico. It's something that I've never seen before because it's very diverse. Nobody is leading the struggle. Everyone is in it together. Young people, our youth are fighting, our elderly people, housewives, unions, feminists, environmentalists, artists, politicians, everyone is in for it. It's, uh, it's literally the struggle of an entire country. And in two weeks, we've seen more protests than we've seen in a decade continuously. We saw a huge march with more than 200,000 people in San Juan last week. Then we saw this week the general strike where the media has been conservative, but the numbers that we've had is that more than a million people took the streets that day in our country. Yesterday, people were protesting in the governor's mansion, and the variety of the protests are very diverse. We have people in motorcycles, people in bikes protesting and getting their bikes, hundreds of bikes. People have gotten their boats and have gone up that protest. And the protests have spread through the continental U.S. and other countries. People every day are fighting back. And people have been attacked by the police that have pepper sprayed them, that have tear gas, rubber bullets. But even though they have done that, people have stood back, reorganized, and fought back. You throw me the gas, I run a little, I go back, and I reorganize, and I save you back. So the police are scared because people are fighting back, and people are not scared. People are too tired of living in unhumane conditions in our country. They're not scared anymore. And I am sure that it's because of this massive protest and this struggle this combat that is happening in, in all time one, all together, that is going to make this governor finally quit. They say that he left yesterday after 12 midnight because he's such a coward that he doesn't even have the, he wants, he, he said he wanted, he did not want to quit, but then he goes and into hiding for the entire two weeks of the protest and then he leaves the country like a coward he is. It doesn't face us after what he did. So we are just waiting yeah. anxiously to see the message of his resignation. Yeah. And we are sending a message to every politician because it doesn't stop here. Taking him out of the way is just one thing. Yeah. We have been able to see how his cabinet members have resigned one by one by one. Fifteen cabinet positions are not filled right now. They have all, all the people from the chat had to resign. All the government officials are resigning. We have no government for Puerto Rico right now. And it's a very hard scenario for them. So it doesn't end here because the public policy and authority measures will continue with, as long as we have the Oversight Control Fiscal Board. They're going to continue with the current political party or the opposition, which is the Popular Democratic Party. So now is our time to organize the people. And now that we've seen, that people have seen the power that they have, that they can take out a corrupt government, 
and its officials. They will have to respect the people of Puerto Rico. Whoever wants to take a position of the governor has it in for him or for her because people are taking it no longer. So now is our time to make our demands and to build the country that we deserve and that our children deserve and that our, the future generations deserve. So this is just the beginning of a struggle. Now we have to build a country that we deserve to live in. Yeah, so what comes next once he's officially gone? Do you know who will step in temporarily, or is that all in flux because people are resigning? Well, right now they are not saying who's going to fill in. The Constitution says that the Secretary of State is supposed to take charge. We have no Secretary of State, but we don't care who it is. We care about what we want them to do for the people of Puerto Rico and None of them represent us. None of them and their public policies represent us, and they have to have that in mind very clear. Um, news have said here, too, that yesterday an uh, airplane full of FBI agents, of federal agents, came and landed in Puerto Rico, like 60 agents at night. They were expecting another plane in the morning. So we are expecting more arrests to be occurring anytime soon. When you mentioned the PROMESA and the, the Fiscal Control Board, um, what would it take to get rid of that? Does that have to be the U.S. Congress? or? Yeah. The PROMESA law was enacted by the U.S. Congress and was signed by President Barack Obama. So the U.S. Congress, specifically the Committee of Natural Resources, which is the one that created it, would have to abolish that law. Today there's going to be a press conference at 11 a.m., asking the judge that is in charge of the bankruptcy case in Puerto Rico to stop the bankruptcy the bankruptcy in Puerto Rico to put it on hold while these investigations come forward. They are asking the debt to be audited because we know it's an odious debt and we want the debt to be canceled. John Stiglitz, the family Nobel Prize, said that in order for us to be able to live well, more than 70% of the debt needs to be canceled. So we have to get rid of the debt. We have to abolish this law. We have to pressure the U.S. Congress. And we need a government that is willing not to comply with what the fiscal board says. We need a government that does not follow the fiscal plan that the oversight fiscal board imposes on us while this is done. So we have a lot of work in our hands in front of us. What can people in the mainland U.S. do to support this if it has to come through Congress? I know that there have been protests across the country in support of Puerto Rico, but what more would you like to see from people, from unions, um, stateside? In the states, in the continental U.S., everyone can vote for the, every citizen can vote for the Congress members. So, hashtag your, can I your congressman? asking them to abolish the PROMESA law. We let us to the congressmen, congresswomen, send videos to them, visit them, and ask them that we want the PROMESA law to be abolished, that we want the debt to be canceled, and that we want to end colonialism. Puerto Rico is a crime against humanity. We are the last colony in the Caribbean. So there's much that can be done from the U.S. targeting the Congress and making pressure on them now that Next year, elections will happen in the state as well. 
And that was Mercedes Martinez, president of the Puerto Rican Teachers Federation on the uprising in Puerto Rico. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for ARG. I wish I'd written that. My pick for ARG this episode is Even Nice, Generous, Rich People Are Not Your Friends by Nick French in Jacobin Magazine. Let's face it, despite our current populist zeitgeist, Americans have never really shaken their fascination with the super rich. Something about the mythology of the American dream makes us identify with people who possess more wealth than we could ever earn in many lifetimes. So we've made celebrities of Silicon Valley giants like Bill Gates and financial moguls like Warren Buffett and, of course, real estate fat cats like our current president. Our long tradition of philanthropy suggests that rich people are in a perfect position to save us, so why not take Jeff Bezos' money and be done with it? The current wave of democratic socialism, however, is pushing back against this lionization of the rich. And here's where Nick French begins his takedown of the Gatsby-esque myth of the magnanimous magnate. He cites the close links between politicians like Joe Biden and the philanthro-capitalist class that he often hits up for campaign cash. French warns that the linking of politics and wealth is precisely why the rich cannot be relied upon to deliver salvation through private means. He writes, quote, So many rich people are kind souls who give back to society in big ways, so maybe it's wrong to demonize them. Perhaps you might think, even if most of the ultra-rich are rapacious sociopaths, we should thank the rich who donate to noble causes for their generosity, or, as some have argued, look to them to solve more of society's problems through philanthropy. This would be a mistake. We shouldn't cut the benevolent rich any slack, not least because, upon closer examination, they usually aren't so benevolent at all, close quote. He cites the theoretical example of the shoe factory of Mr. Laces. Mr. Laces is, by nature of his class identity, inherently opposed to any regulatory, environmental, or economic improvement that would make his workers' lives better, even if he is a charming fellow. As French argues, quote, it's not a question of rich people like Mr. Laces being good or bad people. If they want to succeed in business, they must act against workers' interests. Mr. Laces might donate to the Sierra Club and claim to care about sustainable business, but he still knows that he'll have to fire people if sales fall this quarter, and he ain't installing solar panels on the roof of his factory anytime soon. French also extends this illustration to the business choice that faces many companies these days, how to use technology to improve productivity. Automation, ethically speaking, is a double-edged sword and management generally wields this at the expense of labor. French writes, quote, Technological improvement wouldn't be a bad thing if workers themselves are deciding how to deploy it. But when choices about technology are prerogative of business owners, even benevolent ones like Mr. Laces, they have an enormous incentive to use upgrades to pad their profits or simply stay afloat rather than increase workers' well-being, unquote. Basically, the super-rich don't necessarily want to harm poor people per se, They just can't help themselves. Capitalism structures our social positions as well as our moral ones. And our personal sense of ethics is often eclipsed by the material factors that determine the architecture of our reality and how we relate to our fellow human beings, both above and below us on the social hierarchy. Even when they build a school, donate to a museum, or fund a vaccination programs, the ultra-rich do not truly solve any of the social crises they seek to address. They merely mitigate or delay the consequences of these problems which are in many cases caused by the do-gooders themselves. But they almost never actually sacrifice their own wealth, decide to wipe out their own privilege in a spectacular act of self-sabotage, or choose to transcend their class privilege and become workers. 
But don't rich people atone for the original sin by tithing to the Church of Philanthropy? The Gates Foundation is funding malaria treatment across Africa. Heck, even tobacco CEOs have been plowing funds into lung cancer research. Yet when the rich buy their indulgences in the form of good works to alleviate suffering, suffering that they help cause in many cases, the benefits don't always pan out. For instance, under the leadership of the Clintons' mega-charity operation, Haiti became a sinkhole for international aid donations after the devastating earthquake and suffered massive neglect, corruption, and mismanagement. Various philanthropies have tried to fix public schools and merely privatize them instead. Not every celebrity-backed charity project fails, but there's scant evidence that the rich, simply by being rich, are inherently qualified to wield such massive power over people's lives whether they are employing them as workers or aiding them as beneficiaries of their philanthropy. Yet it's often the people in the best position to fix these problems, the people in the targeted communities, the people who face these realities in their everyday lives, it is they who are the most disenfranchised, the most ignored stakeholders, when the super wealthy try to swoop in and save the world. French reminds us, quote, the greatest improvement in the lives of poor and working people throughout history have been won by mass movements from below. After decades of capitalist assault on labor unions, regulations, and public goods, the last thing we should do is look to elites as our benefactors, unquote. But to unleash that power from below, we need to shift loyalties. Workers around the world need to unlearn their learned helplessness. They need to stop looking above for their salvation. And we need to start saving each other, rather than waiting for the man to do it for us. Last episode, we talked about the Amazon Prime Day strike and the leadership of the Somali-American workers in Minnesota in the struggle against the retail and logistics giant. This week, I'm returning to the subject for ARG because it's worth looking at the organizing that has resulted in the first stateside Amazon strike and the community that produced it, also the community that produced Representative Ilhan Omar. At The Guardian, in a piece called The Amazon Prime Day Strike Shows How to Take on Amazon and Win, Spencer Cox details the background of the organizing that led to these workers' success. He writes, quote, things are different in Minneapolis. Starting three years ago, a small cohort of workers in conjunction with union organizers started to fight back. At first, they picked a fight about the removal of a bus line that connected the East African residential area to the warehouse. Another petition followed for stolen wages for drivers. These were followed by Muslim workers demanding better rights during Ramadan when fasting workers struggled to make rate. Demands bridged better conditions on the shop floor to broader demands around faith, transit, and housing. They held workplace socials to get to know each other better. They organized across ethnic groups, age gaps, gender, and racial divisions. They started to trust in each other and recognize that their fight was just and morally right. Workers who might have been suspicious of the organized workers in the beginning started to see alternative ways to deal with their problems, and more have started to join and lead workplace actions. These actions forged unity and solidarity on the shop floor. People looked out for each other, end quote. It mattered that organizers put money and effort into a strategy that wasn't going to immediately lead to dues-paying members, that they trusted workers to organize across community lines, that they found in the specific demands of an East African Muslim community a way to win concessions from a massive company rather than by playing to a lowest common denominator strategy. It matters that organizing at Amazon, like prior organizing at Walmart, work up and down the supply chain, as Cox writes, quote, instead of organizing workers into different unions based on job roles, Amazon's reorganization of the retail industry requires a new organization that builds solidarity on an industrial basis. Warehouse workers are tech workers. With HQ engineers and UX designers from the organization Amazon Employees for Climate Justice joining in solidarity with warehouse workers and drivers this week, workers are already realizing that they are more powerful together. 
end quote. Finally, it matters to think big when organizing locally. What does it mean to see in the specific demands of one community the possibility of connecting globally to the needs of all workers? What could be accomplished if Amazon could be brought to heel? Quote, if united, what demands could we imagine in this age of miraculous machines? A radically reduced work week for all workers? Industrial democracy? Affordable worker housing? Free and accessible health care and a decarbonized economy? What are we willing to fight for? If the brave workers on strike this prime day have shown us anything, it is that ordinary people, when given a chance to fight for a better, more dignified world, are willing. There is power in a union. End quote. Finally, this week we remember Hector Figueroa, the president of SEIU 32BJ, who died unexpectedly on July 11th. Though he had recently been battling members of his own movement over Amazon, Figaro will be remembered mainly for his commitment to worker organizing, from the fight for 15 to the airport workers who won a $19 minimum wage recently, to the people of Puerto Rico, where Figaro was born and retained a strong connection. We bring you a little bit of his words from a recent speech. But this is not about 32BJ today. It's about the Writers Guild and about the injustice that has been done by a billionaire who thinks that he can really deny workers at DNA Info and the Gotamins the right to have a voice at work, the right to have a union. And brothers and sisters, we want to make two points. They have been said, but they should not be said enough. Everyone needs to repeat this. We need independent journalism right. now more than ever. We need the work of those who are telling the stories of low-wage workers who are trying to organize, those who are telling the stories of what happens in city governments, those who are telling the stories of how working families struggle, whether during Sandy or whether to bring food to the table in an increasingly expensive city. We know that the voice that you provided through these two men, through these two venues, will not be silenced. We are there with you. We are to work with you and work hard with you to make sure first that this decision can be reversed. And if not, we join the public advocate that we want to be there with you to support you personally and to support you as who you are, those who seek the truth and who speak truth to injustice. But we also have another message to all workers in the city of New York. And on this, we stand united. Whether it's a Central Labor Council, or District 37, or the Teachers Union, or 32BJ, or the Writers Guild, we are to say, in this moment in which this act has been committed, that we will fight back. That workers in this economy have the right to have a union. And that we are not going to be intimidated. We are not to be scared by this billionaire trying to destroy that right. So those workers who are fighting to have the union today, and you see this example, don't hesitate. Keep fighting for the union. Keep standing for your rights. We are going to prevail, and it will be, it will be history is going to judge those kind of individuals who believe that workers can be silenced. So brothers and sisters, we fight for the union, we fight for the union, and we stand with you. Can we win? Yes, yes we can. Yes. Se puede? Yes.
That's all we have time for today. Thanks, as always, to Descent for hosting us and to Natasha Lewis for editing us and making us sound good. Thanks to all of you for listening, for tweeting about the podcast and sharing it with your friends, writing us reviews on iTunes or wherever you listen, and most especially, thank you to all of our monthly sustaining donors who keep us going with your dollars. You can become a sustaining member at descentmagazine.org slash belabored membership. Just $5 a month will get you an excellent belabored tote bag. We also have some fabulous Descent t-shirts if you sign up to be a Solidarity subscriber to the magazine. You can find out more about that program and those t-shirts at descentmagazine.org solidarity. You can also always write to us if you're a Puerto Rican worker or a teacher or a domestic worker, if you're organizing at Amazon or Walmart, or if you just have something to share. Belabored at descentmagazine.org or tweet at us at hashtag belabored. Thanks, solidarity, and we'll be back in two weeks. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.